You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow together before we open God's Word. Our Father, before your Word, we bow this morning and ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what is here for us to obey and for us to apply. We thank you that your Word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. We thank you that through the unfolding of your Word that there is light. We submit ourselves to it and ask your blessing upon it and this time together in it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a confession to make to you right at the beginning of the message today, and I don't want to hide anything from you. I don't want anything to be sort of um, underneath the surface or behind the scenes, so I need to confess something right at the beginning so that we all know at the outset something. And it is that I do not have a conclusion for the message today. That is because there simply is no good way to stop in the middle of this text. Now, if you happen to have been at our preaching seminar or classes that we had a couple years ago, then you know that there are some cardinal rules to preaching. First, always have a good introduction, which this is not. Second, always have a good conclusion, which I just confessed to you that I don't have. And third, if you don't have a good introduction, you don't have a good conclusion, never tell your congregation, which I just did. So just turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 24, and I will show you why it is that this text really has no way of wrapping up for us. And if we had two hours, I would have a good conclusion. I'll probably have a good conclusion next week. At least I'm expecting that I will. I don't know that for certain. I may have to make the same confession at the beginning of next week's sermon. But we are going to be, I'm going to be exhausted long before this text is exhausted, and our time is going to run out long before the things that we could say in this text run out. So in Acts chapter 24, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 27. We're not going to get all the way to verse 27 before we're forced to stop. But I want you to read along or follow along with me as I read. These verses take place immediately after Paul's defense of himself before Felix. Now remember verses 1 to 9, we looked at the, the case that the prosecution made against the apostle. They accused him of sedition sectarianism, and sacrilege. And then we looked at how the Apostle Paul answered each and every one of those charges and then masterfully brought the subject matter right back around to the resurrection, which is really what he wanted to talk about. They didn't want to talk about that. They didn't want to debate the doctrine of Jewish, uh, the Jewish doctrine of resurrection or the Christian doctrine of resurrection with the Apostle Paul. But that's what he wanted to talk about. Now verses 22 through the end of the chapter tells us what happened after Paul's defense before Felix. And what I want you to look for, and I just want you to observe something as we read, and here's what I want you to look for. As we read, I want you to look at this. I want you to look at the relationship that existed between the Apostle Paul and Felix. There's something significant that kind of runs through the whole text. You're going to learn, we're going to learn a lot about Paul from these verses. We're going to learn a lot more about Felix from these verses. But they have a very interesting relationship that develops through the course of this time that Paul is with Felix. And I want you just to observe the interaction between the two of them, beginning at verse 22 of Acts chapter 24, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, 
When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him, that is Paul, to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom, and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. That's what happens after the trial. Notice how much time takes place at the end of Acts chapter 24. Did you notice it? I emphasized it. Two years. I'm going to get into that more next week. What I want you to notice this morning is that after the trial, Felix does five things. Now, I may not have a good introduction or a good conclusion, but I think I have a fairly good outline because I have five points. And so at least something about today's sermon should be good. Five things that Felix does. First of all, Felix promises Paul justice. Second, he provides protection. Third, he was presented the gospel. Fourth, he perverted justice. And then fifth, he postponed a decision. Those are the five things that Felix does. Or actually, the third one is what's done to Felix. He was presented the gospel. He promised Paul justice. He provided Paul protection. And then he was presented the gospel. Those are the three we're going to look at today. We're actually not even going to get through all the way through the third point. We're just going to stop because the clock is going to run out. Then he would perverted justice. And then fourth, he postponed the decision for almost two years. Let's look at the first one, verse 22. Look at what Luke says. Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I'll decide your case. That's kind of an interesting little editorial footnote, isn't it? Felix had a more exact knowledge about the way. The way, of course, is Luke and Paul. That's their term of referring to the Christian faith and Christ and the faith in Christ. Felix had a more exact knowledge about the way. Felix knew some things about the Christian faith. He knew some of the Christian distinctives, some of the Christian doctrines. He was maybe familiar with the claims of Christ and the the differences between Christians and everybody else in the Roman Empire or even Christians and Jews. He had a very exact knowledge about the way. Felix was not ignorant about Christianity. And as Paul begins to discuss with him in his trial about resurrection, you think Felix understood what he was talking about? I think he did. He had an exact knowledge about the way. He knew what Christians believed about the resurrection. He knew what Christians believed about the resurrection of Christ and the death of Christ. Felix was somewhat acquainted with the claims of Christ and the distinctives between Christianity and Judaism or what the Jews considered Orthodox Judaism. He had an exact knowledge about these things. So as Paul talks about the distinctives of the Christian faith, he's not speaking in a vacuum. He's speaking to a man who has a a good knowledge about what Paul is talking about. And I think that is why Paul said to Felix when he began his defense, knowing that you have been a judge to this nation for many years, I cheerfully make my defense before you. Because Felix had been a judge of that nation for long enough that he knew the people, he knew the religions, he knew the sects, he knew the, the, the different movements, political and religious, that were under his jurisdiction. It was his job to know those things. Now how did Felix come to a more exact knowledge of the way? How do you think he found out about Christianity? Luke doesn't tell us. There's a couple things that hint and we're able to sort of speculate about how he might have known. Verse 24, do you notice what verse 24 says? Some days later, Felix arrived with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. 
We're going to find out more about Jusula in just a second, but notice just for now that she was Jewish. She was a Jewish woman. It's possible that Drusilla had a good knowledge about Christianity and Judaism and that she had grown up in that area. She knew the different religions. She knew the different faiths and what the distinctives were. Felix might have found out about those things from his wife, Drusilla. Or it's possible that there were some Christians who were close to Felix who had opportunity to share with Felix about their faith. It's possible that Felix had within his own administration people who had become believers and maybe had been believers for quite some time. In fact, it's possible that Felix had a subordinate, a centurion, who lived in Caesarea, named Cornelius, who had been a believer for quite some years and who served as a direct subordinate to Felix. Whether it was through Drusilla or through Cornelius or through some other Christian, Felix had an exact knowledge about the way. But here's what I want you to notice. Felix was not a believer, was he? Wasn't a believer. But if you had asked Felix... What do Christians believe about Christ and the resurrection? I think Felix would have been able to give you a pretty ballpark answer. He would have been able to tell you, well, Christians believe that Jesus was God, that He died on a cross and that He rose again, and that we have salvation through faith in Him. I think Felix would have been able to pretty much give you the distinctives of the Christian faith. He had a very exact knowledge about the way. A very excellent knowledge. A very thorough knowledge about this thing called Christianity. But he wasn't a believer. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not information about Christianity that makes you a believer, is it? You can know all about the Christian faith without never ever knowing anything of faith itself. You can know all about the Christian way without ever being familiar with the one who is the way. Felix was just such an individual. Always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Always studying and finding out more about Christianity, but he died Christless, even though he had a very exact knowledge about the way. Listen, Christian parents, here's the danger that you and I face in raising our kids. The danger that you and I face in raising our kids is that we would raise kids who know a lot about the faith but don't know anything of faith. The danger that you and I face is that we might raise little Felixes who have a very exact knowledge about Christ but don't know Christ Himself. And they may be able to quote all of the Bible verses in order and all of the verses of the Roman road and they may be able to quote everything in their Awana books for 8 years or 10 years or 12 years all the way through everything and may have a citation award sitting on their shelf. They may have all of that and yet never know Christ because they have a knowledge about the way but not a knowledge of the way, an intimate relationship with Christ Himself. We could raise little Pharisees who have washed the outside of the cup but insides rotten bones. Your child may be able to beat me in a Bible trivia game and still be just like Felix lost and join him in a Christless eternity. Just because your kid can quote Bible verses and say the catechism forward and backwards doesn't prove a thing. Felix, I think, was the type of guy who would put some of our kids to shame in Sunday school, but he died. died without Christ. He had an exact knowledge about the way. I fear that for some Christian parents. I fear that for some of you who have been sitting here for weeks and months and maybe even years and you have an exact knowledge about what our church believes and what the Scriptures teach and what we believe about Christ, but you've never embraced grace in Christ. You're a stranger to the faith, but you can tell me what I believe about the faith. You can tell me with your head what you think Scripture says, and you'd probably be spot on, but you've never reached out and embraced Christ. And if that's the, if that's the case, if that's true of you, then friends, this week and next week, you're going to see more and more of yourself in Felix. You're going to see Felix responding to truth the same way that you respond to truth. I went to Bible college with boys and girls, men and women, now, 
who have totally apostatized from the faith, totally abandoned faith in Christ. But listen, they got better grades than I did, some of them. Some of those kids knew more when they showed up for Bible college than I did when I left Bible college. They got better grades than I did. They didn't know Christ. He had a very exact knowledge about the way. But it was an intellectual curiosity that never went beyond a head knowledge. He never actually knew Christ the way. That's Felix. So look what he does. He has a very exact knowledge about the way. Verse 22 says he he put them off. Literally, he adjourned the court proceedings. He said, we're adjourned. And here was his conclusion. He just said, we're adjourned. And when Lysias comes down, I'll decide your case. Remember who Lysias is? Lysias was the commander who interrupted the whole temple scene and arrested the apostle Paul and took him into the barracks and then put him before the Sanhedrin. And then after everything deteriorated then and he heard about the plot on Paul's life, Lysias was the one that sent Paul off to Caesarea to stand before Felix. And he wrote the letter about Paul and everything that he had discovered in sort of his fact-finding mission. And he sent that letter with Paul. He, Lysias was the commander of the Roman cohort in Jerusalem. And so he says, well, I, I've heard the Ananias' side and Tertullus' side of the story. And I've heard the Apostle Paul's defense. And if that's not enough, he sort of puts it off and says... I'm going to call Lysias down. I had a few questions. And when Lysias comes down and I'm able to get a few more of my questions answered, then I'll decide your case. Now, here's what's interesting. He never did send for Lysias that we know of. He simply adjourned the proceedings and used getting Lysias there as an excuse to do so. Because, listen, Felix had two options. There was two things that Felix could have done. First of all, he could have punished the Apostle Paul. That was one option. He could have handed the Apostle Paul over to the Jews, or he could have punished them under Roman law and kept them in prison or executed them. He could have done something like that. But here's the problem with that. Felix really doesn't believe that Paul's guilty. And neither does Lysias. And Lysias, the commander, is on record with his letter saying that he has declared Paul innocent. And Felix doesn't have anything but unsubstantiated, baseless accusations to go against. No eyewitnesses, no specific allegations, no evidence that Paul was guilty of any of those things. And the Jews have not presented enough evidence to get Paul's jurisdiction handed over to the Jews. So if he punishes the Apostle Paul, he's going to be in trouble with Rome because he unjustly punished a Roman citizen. So Felix can't do that. He can't punish the Apostle Paul. That would get him in trouble with Rome. But here's the other thing he could have done. He could have let the Apostle Paul go. Now listen, this is what he should have done, but he didn't do that. And you know why he didn't do it? You know why he didn't let the Apostle Paul go? Because Felix's relationship with the Jews in Jerusalem and throughout that whole province was always at a boiling point. Always right on the verge of that. Remember, Felix was a brutal, cruel, oppressive, bloodthirsty tyrant who ruled that region. And the Jews hated him, which is why that whole flattery thing at the beginning of their prosecution, you know, we've enjoyed much peace and under your administration reforms are being carried out, blah, blah, blah. That's why all that was such nonsense. They hated the man. And the relationship between Felix and the Jews was always at a boiling point. And there would be an uprising, and Felix would come in and he would squash it, which would create a bigger uprising, and he would come in with more force and brutality and squash it. And that would create a bigger uprising. That was the way it went on. And always the the relationship was on the verge of an uprising. And if Felix lets Paul go, that may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And Felix was on probation with Rome because there had been so many uprisings in his district Rome was literally watching him. And it was only two years later that Nero replaced him. But Rome was literally watching him and he was on probation. He did not want another riot. He did not want another uprising that he would have to put down. So if he punishes the Apostle Paul, he's in trouble with Rome. 
If he lets the Apostle Paul go, he's in trouble with the Jews. And he's caught in this difficult political situation. And the Apostle Paul is the victim. And so he puts the Apostle Paul off. And he says, when Lysias comes down, I'll decide your case. It's a convenient excuse. And he simply keeps the Apostle Paul in prison. That was the justice that Felix promised. When Lysias comes, I'll decide your case. He's promised justice. Never gets justice. Second thing that Felix does. He provides Paul with protection. Look at verse 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. Now, one quick note just about the centurion. i got to wonder if Cornelius was still a centurion in Caesarea and if he still served under Felix and if he was part of the whole centurion company, sort of the joint chiefs of staff, if you will, underneath of Felix. I wonder if Cornelius was still there because he was a centurion in Caesarea. But here, another centurion, obviously not Cornelius, or Luke would have mentioned that, another centurion is given custody of the Apostle Paul. And I want you to look at the terms of his custody or his his confinement. Verse 23, he is ordered to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom. And most scholars believe that means the Apostle Paul had a very limited but a very real freedom to move about in the city as long as he was guarded by a centurion or as long as he was accompanied by some of the guards under the centurion, the Apostle Paul would have the freedom to sort of move about at will. This is not a restrictive custody that the Apostle Paul is given. It's a protective custody. And there's a good reason for it. The Jews want to kill him. The Jews everywhere want to kill him. The only time he's going to be safe is when he finally gets completely away from that side of the Roman Empire over to the city of Rome itself. And all the while, the Jews are hounding his steps. And so he's given a centurion. He's given freedom. And Luke says that the Felix told the centurion, don't keep any of his friends from ministering to him. Remember his friends? Tychicus, Trophimus, Titus, Timothy, Luke, Aristarchus, Gaius, all those men who came with him from all the regions around Macedonia. All those men are with him. They followed him to Jerusalem. They've come with him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And they have unfettered access to the Apostle Paul. And it's my conviction, I think, that the Apostle Paul was enjoying, enjoying a pretty posh or pretty pleasant imprisonment here in Caesarea. He was kept in Herod's Praetorium before the trial. And now Felix is even more convinced that the Apostle Paul is innocent. And I think he's staying in the governor's mansion. And he's given freedom, protective custody. His friends are coming to him. Oh, remember who else is in Caesarea? Philip, the evangelist. Remember Philip? They stopped and he saw Philip on the way through to Jerusalem. Philip and his, his prophetess daughters. Do you remember him? The big thriving church in Caesarea. People are coming in and visiting and ministering to the Apostle Paul. And the centurion is seeing all of this. And his friends have unfettered access to him. What an enjoyable time. Not not too bad of a way to spend two years. If you're going to be in prison, that's the best way to be in prison right there. A little bit of freedom. Your friends are coming to see you. He's given protective custody. And friends, you know what this tells us about what Felix believed concerning Paul? Do you think Felix really believed that Paul was guilty of all that he was accused of? Would he have treated Paul like this if he really thought Paul was guilty? If there was any suspicion at all, even even a, a minute amount of suspicion, In Felix's mind about the Apostle Paul, he would have never given him this kind of custody. He would never have allowed the Apostle Paul that kind of freedom, that kind of unfettered access to his friends. Because if he thought for a second he was guilty of sedition, then he would know that the Apostle Paul could stir up sedition through his friends who were allowed to see him. He has absolutely no worry in the world that the Apostle Paul is guilty of sedition. And so his friends are allowed to come and enjoy company with him. If he honestly thought that the Apostle Paul was guilty of leading a sect, he would never have allowed the the followers of that sect to visit with their founder and their chief champion and their chief preacher and the leader of the sect. 
Felix doesn't believe a whit of anything that has been brought against the Apostle Paul. And he gives him basically VIP treatment. That's the protection that he was given. Now third, I want you to know, notice that the gospel was presented to him. He was presented the gospel. Verses 24 and 25, I think, are two of the most interesting verses in this chapter. Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. He's in prison, possibly the the governor's mansion, Herod's Praetorium, and he is enjoying the luxuries of that. And after some time, an undisclosed amount of time, a few days, a few weeks maybe, Felix comes to visit with the Apostle Paul, and he calls for Paul, and Paul comes in before Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Now, before you can appreciate the rest of verses 24 and 25, I have to tell you some things about Drusilla and Felix. Felix was a very immoral man. Drusilla is actually Felix's third wife. Now listen, two of Felix's wives were of royal descent. The first, his first wife, was the granddaughter of Cleopatra and Antony. She was of royal descent. Felix divorced her, married a second woman. I'm not sure if she was of royal descent. In all my study, I can't even find out who that second wife was. But he had a second wife. Then his third wife is Drusilla. He divorced his second wife and he married a third wife as Drusilla. Drusilla is also of royal descent. Her father, she is the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Does that sound familiar, Herod Agrippa? The words Agrippa and Herod Agrippa. Where have we heard that before? Back in Acts chapter 12, it was Herod Agrippa I who, who arrested the apostle Peter and put him in prison, wanted to do the Jews a favor and execute Peter. But an angel of the Lord appeared and released Peter and Peter went out. Remember, he went to the, the house of, um, I forget who it was, somebody knocking on the door and a little servant girl was there and she answered the door. Peter took off and the next day Agrippa woke up. Peter was gone. He executed the guards. And then it says at the end of Acts chapter 12, verse 23, that later on, listen, Agrippa went down to Caesarea and he was walking into the amphitheater there. You remember that? And the people kept shouting out, Oh, the voice of a God and not of a man! And Acts 12.23 says that an angel of the Lord struck him because he didn't give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. That's Drusilla's father. He was the worm food king. Drusilla's father was Herod Agrippa I, to one who was struck by the angel of the Lord eaten by worms, and he died. So her dad was worm food. Now, you say there's another Agrippa that kind of comes into the picture here somewhere, isn't there? There is. The, the other Agrippa is in verse in chapter 25 of Acts, the next chapter, where Paul stands before King Agrippa. That was the son. He's actually Agrippa II, who was the son of Agrippa I, worm food. Agrippa II is his son. Drusilla is his sister. They are brother and sister. Together, she's of royal descent. Now, let me tell you about how Drusilla got hooked up with Felix. She was a very immoral woman even from a very young age. At the age of six years old, she was uh, promised in marriage to Epiphanes, the son of King Antiochus. That marriage never went through. She was sort of promised and it never happened because at the age of 14, Agrippa went back on his word and gave uh, Drusilla to Azizus of Amessa, king, another king, at the age of 14, and gave her to him as his wife. Now, at some point after the age of 14, before this episode, Felix laid eyes on Drusilla and decided he wanted her as his wife. So he had a friend of his who was a Cyprian magician, and that magician sort of conjured some tricks, and, and he was used to woo Drusilla away from Azizus to Felix. 
And through this magician, Felix promised riches and wealth and honor and anything she wanted. Half the kingdom if you wanted. Everything under the sun is yours if you just come and marry me. And so she did. She divorced her husband. She came and she moved in, shacked up with Felix and was living with him and married with him. So the relationship that they have is an adulterous relationship. That's their history. That's what they did. That's who she was. She was noted for her immorality. She was noted for her debauchery. She was noted for her infidelity, for her lust, and for her greed. And at the time that Paul stands before them, listen, she's only 20 years old. Felix is far older than she is. Now you know what Felix wanted out of the deal. And he was offering her wealth and honor and fame and anything that she wanted. And she wanted that, so she, in her greed, went with Felix, and Felix got what he wanted, which was a young, attractive wife who was only 20. And they come to see the Apostle Paul. Now that's interesting, isn't it? And i got to ask myself, because I ask myself these questions all week long, what was it that prompted them to go see the Apostle Paul? Don't you wish Luke would tell us that? Why is it that they wanted to go see the Apostle Paul? Were they sitting in the castle one night, playing checkers, get into a discussion about Jewishism and Christianity, and say, you know what, we've got a prisoner down there who can answer some of our questions. Let's, let's go down and visit the Apostle Paul. He'll tell us all about what Christians believe. Was it that? Did they, were they just bored? Did Drusilla come home one day and say, I've been out at the bond, I've spent half your money, and I'm bored, and I need something to sort of titillate my mind and my thinking, and what do you got for me? What were you doing today, Felix? Well, I was brutally murdering people and oppressing my people and, and starving a bunch of others, and then I had lunch with this rabbi guy named Paul, used to be Saul of Tarsus, You've got Saul of Tarsus in prison? Yeah, he's over in the governor's mansion. Let's go visit with him. I'm a Jew. I grew up in Judea. I'm familiar with that. My father was Agrippa I, and he tried to kill another apostle. I'd kind of like to visit with the apostle. So maybe they go and visit the... I don't know what it was that prompted them, but listen. By the sovereign and providential hand of God, Felix and Drusilla decide they want to talk with the apostle Paul. And who would have thought that God would ever have arranged a meeting like this? This is phenomenal. And so they come in, and they call Paul in, and Paul had to have been a bit perplexed by all this, because he sees not only Felix, but he sees Felix's wife, Drusilla. The Apostle Paul is not stupid, he's not ignorant, he's read the political tabloids of the day, he knows what's gone on between the two of them. It's common knowledge, everybody knows that, it was all over the kingdom. Paul knows their history, he knows the type of people that they are, and here they come to visit him. And what does the text say that the Apostle Paul talked to them about? Look at the end of verse 24. They sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, how did that come up? Paul, how are you enjoying prison? Oh, the food is great. Soft bed, you like that? Yeah, soft bed. Oh, nice weather we're having, isn't it? Beautiful outside. Are any good books lately? Hey, can you tell us about faith in Christ? How does a subject like that come up? Friends, this was something, this was something that Drusilla and Felix wanted to talk to Paul about. It's not like they asked Paul in to play checkers with them and this happened to come up in conversation. They pulled him out of custody and brought him in. And listen, here is the Apostle Paul, not on trial, in a private meeting. It's Felix, it's Drusilla, and it's Paul. Privately. Paul, tell us about Christ. I want you to tell us about faith in Christ. What does this mean to you? Maybe maybe what prompted this 
on hindsight, maybe what prompted this was all of these people, his friends, coming to see him and ministering to him and looking and watching the character of this man and all of the other Christians who were coming to the governor's mansion. Maybe Felix and Drusilla saw that and said, I'd like more information about what it is that makes guys like Paul like Paul. What is it that does that? There's something about what was going on there that when they walked in, they said, talk to us about your faith. Tell us about your faith. Now, do you think Paul took that opportunity? Oh, yeah. Look at verse 25. This is what Luke means, and this is what Paul means when he talks about discussing faith in Christ. Verse 25, as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Look at those three things. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, here's the Apostle Paul in the White House of the day with the governor and the governor's wife. And they have come in and they have pulled him out of custody and said, tell us about your faith. And Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't launch off into something about how marvelous Christianity is. He says, well, I'll tell you about my faith. Let's discuss, I have a three-point sermon. First of all, first point, righteousness. I'll talk to you about righteousness. Now, what does Luke mean by righteousness? What does Paul mean by righteousness? Well, I think he's talking about the righteousness of God. Felix, God is a righteous God. He's a holy God. And he's absolutely righteous. And Felix, I want to tell you about my faith in Christ, but first I have to describe to you what the righteousness of God is and why it is important and how far far short of that righteousness you fall. And I think Paul explained to Felix just how devoid of any righteousness Felix was and the fact that Felix needed desperately to see righteousness and to have righteousness if he was going to stand in the presence of God. And the gospel that Paul presented and the gospel that you and I are called to present Friends, is the gospel of righteousness. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So as Paul discusses righteousness, what he has in mind is the message of the gospel itself. Because Felix's problem is the same problem that you and I had before we came to faith in Christ. That is, that we had a righteousness deficit. It's not just that we had sin on our account. It was actually that we were negative on the righteousness scale. And it wasn't enough for God just to forgive our sins and say, okay, I'm going to throw your sins from the east to the west. I'm not going to look at them anymore. That wasn't enough to stand in the presence of God. To stand in the presence of God, I needed a righteousness. And so the gospel of salvation is the gospel of imputed righteousness. He takes our sin from us, and He doesn't just leave us in that state. He takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it on my account. Not only so that I can have forgiveness of sin, but that's so that I can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that I stand before you today, listen, completely righteous in the sight of God. Not because I have ever done anything righteous. Not because I have earned righteousness. Nor because I can create righteousness. But it is a righteousness that is foreign to me. It is not my own. And it comes on the basis of faith in Christ, not on the basis of the law. That is the gospel of righteousness. I needed righteousness. I had sin. He took the sin and He gave me righteousness. It's a transaction. That's the gospel of righteousness. Point one, Felix. I want to talk to you about righteousness. I want to talk to you about the righteousness of God, how you need righteousness, that you're going to stand before the righteous God and that to get into the kingdom, to get into heaven, to have eternal life, you have to stand before God perfectly righteous, but you don't have righteousness, you have a righteousness deficit. You are absolutely unrighteous in the sight of God. He discussed with him righteousness. Well, that's a powerful point, isn't it? Second, he discussed self-control. Now, what do you think the Apostle Paul meant by self-control? 
Do Felix and Drusilla have any self-control? Any at all? Not a bit. The first point, righteousness, is where he talks about the righteousness of God. The second point is where he confronts them with their sin. You have no self-control. Your mind is depraved. You're wicked. You're slaves to sin. You can do no good. You can do nothing else. You have no righteousness. You have no way of creating righteousness. And it is because of your lack of self-control. It is because of your lack of ability to do good, to do right, and to submit yourself to the law of God that you stand condemned in the presence of a righteous God. He discussed with them self-control. All they knew was licentiousness, greed, lust, brutality, cruel, bloodthirsty, All they knew was all of that depravity and all of that sin. And the Apostle Paul says, Felix, my first point is righteousness. My second point is self-control. That feels hot already, doesn't it? I'm sweating. Are you sweating? Felix was sweating. It says he was trembling. But Paul hadn't even got to the third point yet. What was the third point? Judgment to come. Felix, I want to talk to you about righteousness. I want to talk to you about self-control. Now, The fact that you don't have any righteousness and the fact that you don't have any self-control means that you stand condemned before God. And here's the bad news, Felix. There's judgment to come. You see, if God is righteous and we are not righteous, that's a problem, isn't it? And if God demands righteousness and we can't create righteousness, that's a problem, isn't it? Here's where the Apostle Paul's taking it. Tells him about the holiness of God, tells him about his sin, and he says, look, there's a judgment coming. God has fixed a day in which he has appointed Um, He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world through righteousness, through the man whom He has appointed, and He's furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. There's a day fixed on the calendar. It's on God's calendar. It says Judgment Day. And we can't move that up and we can't move that forward, but He's fixed a day on which He's going to judge the whole world in righteousness. Ah, judge the world in what? Righteousness. That's how righteousness comes back into the picture. Again, he's fixed a a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He told Felix about righteousness, talked to Felix about self-control, talked to Felix about the judgment to come. That's a pretty strong sermon, isn't it? Those are three harsh points, aren't they? Uh, Those would make me sweat. If I were in Felix's shoes, they made Felix sweat. We're going to look at his reaction to all of that next week. But what I want you to notice is this. Notice where Paul does not begin. Paul doesn't begin by saying, Felix, I want to tell you how much God loves you. Did you notice he doesn't say that? No, it's not that God doesn't love Felix. I'm not saying that. Don't misunderstand me. Don't misconstrue what I'm saying. But he doesn't begin by that. He doesn't begin by saying, Felix, let me tell you, there are five five steps to a healthy marriage. There are seven steps to a purposeful life. There are three things to do to be successful in business. There are four things to do to get rid of guilt. He doesn't give them all the self-help stuff that you can get on Dr. Phil and Oprah. What does Paul give them? Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. He doesn't even begin with the love of God. You know what he begins with? The holiness of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's the righteousness and the holiness of God. And in Romans chapter 1, it is with the righteousness and the holiness of God that Paul begins his gospel presentation. And he talks about the unrighteousness and the lack of self-control and the sin of men all the way through chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3. He talks about the propitiation for that sin in chapter 4. And he doesn't even get around to the love of God until chapter 5. We start with the love of God. Paul started with the righteousness of God. Here's what we learn. Three things that we learn about the Apostle Paul and lessons that we get from his presentation of the Gospel and from this interaction between Paul and Felix. Here's the first thing we learn. 
We learn that the Apostle Paul was no respecter of persons. He had every right to stand in fear of Felix, didn't he? He's in the White House of the day, standing before the governor and his wife. But yet, do you get any impression in your mind whatsoever that the person before whom Paul was standing had any sway on him at all? Do you get that impression? Paul talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Friends, this is, this is what Paul would say to the, the little boy on the street, the man on, uh, at the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens, in the streets of Corinth, down in the marketplace, in the synagogues to the Jews, and standing before Felix. It's all the same. Paul is Paul, no matter what the, the audience is. You just don't get this impression that Paul was swayed or awed or impressed or, or put off by Felix's majesty and his power. He's no respecter of persons. Paul just gives the gospel to Felix like he would anybody else. Do you do that? Are you a respecter of persons? Do, do you feel the same way sharing truth with your boss or with your grandfather or your father or somebody who is your superior in some way as you do with somebody who's in Sunday school underneath you? Are you afraid? Listen, the fear of man makes us afraid to share with somebody who's over us or higher than us or bigger than us or greater than us. The fear of man makes us scared to share with them lest they think ill of us or think we're a wingnut or a wacko or something's wrong with us. We're scared of them. fear of man does that to us. Not Paul. Felix and Drusilla and his righteousness, judgment, comes, self-control, gives them the whole gamut of the wrath of God. He's no respecter of persons. Now, Paul had every right to have a fear of man, didn't he? I mean, look, he could have just remembered back to a, a former preacher of righteousness, a guy by the name of John the Baptist, who Herod had arrested. Remember, while John is in captivity, John kept confronting Herod, saying, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod wanted to have him killed. But Herod couldn't kill John because the people respected John, and he feared the same thing that Felix feared in punishing or letting Paul go. So he waited for the opportune time when his daughter asked for John the Baptist's head, and he went ahead and had John the Baptist beheaded. Paul could have said, man, I remember the last time that a guy like me was in a position like I'm at, facing an immoral man, and, and he confronted him with his sin and his unrighteousness, and I don't want to lose my head over this thing. I mean, i got a lot of people that are looking up to me, and i got some books that I need to write still to other churches. Paul didn't do that. He's just no respecter of persons. So you're Felix. doesn't matter if you're Felix or little Frankie in Sunday school. It's the same message. Absolutely unintimidating. Second thing we notice about the Apostle Paul and learn from the Apostle Paul is that the Apostle Paul, and if you look at verse 25, it says he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present time, and I'm going to summon you. The Apostle Paul, his concern was not for himself, but for Felix. His concern was not for himself, but for Felix. Think of the power that Felix had over the Apostle Paul. Think for a second. He had the power of life and death, didn't he? Humanly speaking, horizontally speaking, not factoring in the providence and the sovereignty of God, but horizontally speaking, he had the power of life and death over the Apostle Paul. He could make Paul's life miserable, stop his visits from his friends, stop providing the nice meals, take him out of the governor's mansion and put him into real confinement. He could have said, you know what, this guy is a pest. This guy is bothering my conscience. This guy scared me with his presentation of the gospel. And so I'll show him I'm going to make him miserable. But Paul wasn't concerned about himself. Paul's more interested in serving Christ and saving souls through the proclamation of the Word than he was in his own comforts. Felix had all of that power of the Apostle Paul, and Paul knew he is a brutal, bloodthirsty, 
cruel individual who does not fear God at all. And yet look at the message that the Apostle Paul gave him. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. He's no respecter of persons. The Apostle Paul, his concern was not for himself, but for Felix. And the third thing we see about him is that Paul took the opportunity to share with even the most hardened of sinners. Even the most hardened of sinners. Listen, this is not Ward and June Cleaver that Paul's talking about. It's not the Cleavers that he's talking to. He's not sharing the gospel with Mom and Pa down the street. Who's he sharing the gospel with? You get the morality barrel out and you dig all the way to the bottom and there's Felix and Drusilla lying on the bottom of the morality barrel. These are the worst of sinners, the most hardened of sinners. And who in their right mind would have ever thought that somebody like Felix and Drusilla would ever be a candidate for hearing the gospel? Nobody in their right mind would ever suspect that. Nobody in their right mind would ever think that those two people would come to faith in Christ. Yet who in their right mind would have thought that a Jewish boy, a rabbi, who was zealous for his ancestral traditions and persecuting the church, would have ever trusted Christ and become an apostle? Who would have ever thought that? The Apostle Paul discharged his duty and he proclaimed the gospel of the grace of God to two people like Felix and Drusilla who were the most unlikely of all candidates. He was no respecter of persons. His concern was for Felix and not for himself. And he shared Christ with even the most unlikely of prospects. Now, I promised you that I didn't have a conclusion, and I don't. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to see what it is that we learn from Felix when we come together next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for all that we've learned and for the encouragement that it is to see how the Apostle Paul has handled himself, what he has done, and how he stood up for truth and proclaimed truth. Thank you for this reminder that we must come first to an understanding of your righteousness and your judgment and your wrath against sin before we can ever truly appreciate what it is that we have been saved from. And thank you for that righteousness that comes to us on the basis of faith in Christ and Christ alone. Give us this kind of a boldness, Father. Give us this kind of passion for truth, a love for truth, and a love for sharing the gospel that would help us to do what Paul did and to share Christ in difficult situations like this. Thank you for this example, and thank you for stirring our hearts this morning through your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.